So as we turn then to Wolfmuller and looking where we're at, we left off right around page 198. I'll, I'll do, since it's been a couple weeks. All right, so we'll do a little, we'll do just a little like background on this chapter, but this is the chapter on prayer. And where we're going to go, if we can wrap up prayer, which we may, is we'll go into his chapter, The End of the World as We Know It. And that's going to be uh, eschatology, which is a big deal, in um, particularly in American evangelicalism, which is quite saturated. It, it's kind of a fad or a trend. It comes and goes uh, to some extent. But there, is, uh, there are a number of churches where basically all they do is talk about the end times. So um, that's kind of a problem because, you know, the church is supposed to talk about Jesus, uh, not speculate about the end times. The movies, exactly. We need Peter Jackson to do some end times movies for us. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Page 198 is the new material. And of course, if you recall, uh, chapter 9, Wolfmuller titles, Wrestling with God, Why Prayer is Suffering. Now, it's interesting. I mean, I think sometimes prayer is suffering. Maybe in many overarching ways, prayer is suffering. But I don't find it exclusively suffering. Sometimes prayer is like going into an oasis in the middle of a desert. Or, you know, as I mentioned earlier, into that dairy room in the midst of Costco, where, you know, it's filled with people bustling and ramming your shopping cart, and you're trying to keep your patience, and then suddenly you go into that room and anybody who dares enter in is like, it's like they're going underwater. They hold their breath, they run in, they are piling on the eggs like it's a game show and then they run out of the room. I just sometimes go in there and marinate a little. It feels so good. So this is, uh, this is you know, can, prayer can be that way too. Prayer can be that way too. But I think it's wise of, of Pastor Wolfmuller to present it this way because if we go with the expectation that there's not going to be any resistance to prayer, then we will be greatly surprised as we attempt it. Because the devil and our own sinful nature are hell-bent, literally, on keeping us from prayer. And then what we find, too, is that God can be a little bit ornery in prayer. And that is a great point that he draws out from this event with Jacob, where God and Jacob wrestle all night long. And I think you can see kind of the, what I'm calling the honoriness of God. That's a technical theological term. I'll get the Latin for you next week. But that God himself doesn't necessarily make it easy. Now, he's got a point and a purpose to this. But I I love when I, you know, to think, of, to think of God wrestling with Jacob and to think of a father roughhousing with his children. Uh, you're, you're doing way more than throwing your weight around or trying to, you know, you're certainly not trying to, like, you know, bolster your ego or something like that as a dad. You are trying to teach them things and have fun with them. And by your pushing, you teach them to push back and you teach them the boundaries and the ways, and you teach them if they cross a line. And sometimes these wrestling matches, you know, that you have with your kids, over time, they have their own kind of unspoken narrative. Like, 15 times in a row, I'm not going to let you get away with that. And then suddenly, you're exerting enough effort, and one day you do. And it's this kind of breakthrough, and there's this joy in the little child that, hey, I can finally get Dad in a headlock. You know, this is amazing. You're going to shake him around a bit. So, you know, this is, this is why I think um, when we consider praying to 
our father, this is why he's ornery or playful or wrestles with us, because there is, of course, more to prayer than meets the eye. And there's a lot of growth and development and quote-unquote roughhousing that God does with us through prayer. So that's why I think Wolfmuller is wise to bring it up uh, in this kind of motif or way. Now, as he points out, the first reason to pray is that we have a command. And again, you can even think of this in a pretty strict, narrow, legal frame that God has given us a command to pray. Uh, If we had to get real specific, we'd say the second commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And of course, that's the negative. But the positive is that you should use the name of God to pray, praise, and give thanks. So, in the first place, it's a command, and it comes with the same threats that all the other commands come with. And so, we are, uh, God himself commands us to pray on pain of consequence. And Luther's so delightful about this in the large catechism. He's even like, you know, how many, how many times have we been, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but how many times have we been punished because we haven't prayed and asked God to be merciful to us. And he would have gladly been merciful, but we did not pray. We did not ask. Now, can that theology be taken too far into a name it, claim it kind of thing? You've got to name it specifically in order to get it? Yeah, okay, but that would be an abuse of this theology. Um, And an abuse doesn't negate the truth of what's being stated. All right, so the second thing that Wolf Mueller points out is that there's a promise of prayer. And this is even inherent in the command that God delights in our prayers and promises to hear us. Okay? So, if you, of course, if you take this in, you take the time to, to take this in, and you receive it in faith, it's a mind-boggling thing. Because God who sits seated in the heavens, literally, truly, between seraphim, four living creatures, 24 saints, innumerable angels, and all the company of, of the saved, of the washed, of the baptized. Uh, he hears our prayer, receives our prayer, and answers for our good. That's what is promised. And, of course, there's this beautiful thing with God. He is not at all like the Greek gods, where, you know, I, I, I pray that um, you would save my son. And so my son ends up in, like, a completely torturous, tormented situation from which he can't die. Hey, thanks for answering that prayer. Is that what I meant? No. But is that what you gave? Yes. So this idea of asking for a fish and receiving a snake because the Greek gods are untrustworthy. And we're assured that our Heavenly Father is not at all like this, such that if we ask for a snake, he's not going to give it to us. And if we ask for a fish, he's not going to give us a snake. And so there's this beautiful promise that he receives our prayers in the most gracious and loving manner and in a fatherly way such that he will answer in ways that are good for us only. That's why I keep praying for the red Ferrari and it hasn't arrived yet. He knows what I'm going to do with that and that's not going to be good for me or anyone else. Okay, So uh, this too is at root of Jesus' teaching that whatever you ask you will get, wait, is that what he says? No, whatever you ask, in my name. And if you flesh out this in my name, it's what's good for you and what's good for Christians um, for the purposes of Christ and, and what it means to be a Christian in the proper sense. That's what he's promising us. And of course, sometimes his answers are very delayed. Sometimes his answers are, you know, we we might pray for healing for someone, a Christian, and of course that's within God's good and gracious will, but he permits them to decline and maybe even to die. Have those prayers gone cruelly unanswered? Well, in a sense, no. They're already healed, at least in a sort of different way in which we would normally think as they are in heaven, 
and the healing of their bodies will indeed take place in the resurrection of the dead. And so you can see this even um, in the dialogue between Jesus and Mary and Martha, remember? And um, I, your brother will rise again. Uh, I know that he will rise in the resurrection. <laughs> and Jesus says, I am the resurrection. That's our default and ultimate hope. So uh, we have to wait on God for the fullness of the answer to our prayers, even unto that age which is to come. That's when all prayers will be rightly answered and all things will be set right. So we have great and wonderful promises in prayer. And so the command to pray and the promise that God will hear us uh, are the substantive parts. Um, And then the third that he brings up on page 196, we're we're getting awfully close now to where we left off, um, is that, that prayer is instructive. Now, sometimes prayer can change our hearts. That's true, and that's a component. But when people say things like, that's all the purpose of prayer is, you're not changing anything in God, you're just changing something in you, that's not correct. That's an overstatement and ends up just psychologizing prayer uh, and making it a meaningless act other than self-conformity, which you could do without prayer. So that goes too far. But there is nonetheless a kernel of truth somewhere in there. Let me give you a concrete example. If you start praying for someone in your life that you're really having a hard time with, as you continue to pray for them, it's amazing how you start to gain a heart for them and compassion for them. And your anger in many respects diminishes or at least takes on a more three-dimensional character wherein you're able to acknowledge um, various charitable aspects. So maybe you're praying also that this person would be saved, that they would come to the knowledge of the truth, or you're praying that this person would repent, or you're praying that this person, though their sins be great and painful, that they would not unduly be punished. Or, you know, these are the kinds of things you come to through. So are you changing in prayer? Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's only wrong, I think, to assert that that's all that's going on in prayer. That's an abuse and gives us an entirely wrong mindset. Why then would I ever pray? I don't need any changing. And and, And indeed, most people who hold that principle that prayer is not to change God, but only to change you, um, end up not praying. Big surprise. Big surprise. All right, so so Jesus teaches us what we really need in this life. That's uh, the next thing about prayer. And so the Lord's Prayer, you know, is very interesting because, and I think that's why so many Christians in America don't like the Lord's Prayer, because they go, well, I don't want any of that stuff. I don't care about any of that stuff. (laughs) I want, and here's my laundry list, you know, my specific personal laundry list. So one of the fundamental things that Jesus does is teaches us what to pray for and what really matters. So the Lord's Prayer would be the crystalline example of that. But I never cease to be amazed and blown away by what the Psalms have us pray for. And I cannot help but recognize it is so frequently alien to to what I would think of to pray for, naturally, and also the emphases of the Psalms. Psalm after Psalm after Psalm, praying against our enemies, whether they be fleshly instantiations under the sway of the principalities and powers of darkness. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood per se, but against those powers behind it doesn't, he's not saying, oh, therefore we never have any problems with human beings. I mean, Paul himself names human beings who have made shipwreck of their faith, who have made life very difficult for him. Uh, he names some of them in the scriptures. So it's not to exonerate flesh and blood. It's just to see that flesh and blood are very often the puppets, as harmful as they may be, uh, are the puppets of powers behind them, unseen powers of of darkness and evil, okay? So uh, we pray for, we are taught as we pray, those things for which we ought to pray. Lord's Prayer, Psalms, incredible master classes on praying for what we need to, and lo and behold, that will change your outlook on life. 
That will change your theological emphases. And all of that, again, all of these, again, are examples in which, yes, prayer can and will change you, but the point of prayer is that God has us, Christ has us call upon God as our Father. So our prayers don't go like this. The disciples come to Jesus. Lord, teach us how to pray. And he says, okay, when you pray, pray in this way. Dear, all-knowing, all-powerful, unchanging God, you already know what it is that I'm going to say. Amen. That's not how Jesus teaches us to pray. Even if those things are all true, that's not the way that God relates to us or desires to relate to us. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is unchanging. He does already know what we're going to pray for before we pray. But he doesn't want us to engage with him in that way. So what we can see here is a distinction that's really helpful. We can talk about this in transcendence and imminence. Okay, Transcendence is God in his incomprehensibility. We can just kind of name these things, but we can't even properly understand them. That is that God is, for example, unchanging. All right, That's the difficult one with prayer. But when his disciples ask Jesus, teach us to pray, he doesn't say, well, God's unchanging, so good luck. He already knows, and it's going to be the way it is. All right, Not transcendent aspect of God, but imminent aspect of God. An imminent aspect of God is the God revealed to us most frequently in the scriptures, maybe the side of God revealed to us most frequently in the scriptures, which is easiest for us to understand, where God indeed changes his mind. The biblical language is even stark. He sometimes is said to repent or relent. Okay, So, for example, uh, God's plea through the prophets, the minor prophets in particular, all the way up to the demise of the northern kingdoms and then finally the captivity of the southern kingdoms is, turn and I will turn to you. Repent and I will take away this punishment that I am threatening you with. I will change what I'm saying. And, of course, if you want a really concrete, tight proof text of this, uh, you can think of um, Jonah and Nineveh, and God repents or relents, depending upon your exact translation, of his threat or promise to destroy the Ninevites. Okay? So this is all part of the imminence of God, is he desires to be our father, and he gives every appearance in just our everyday life and way of, human way of thinking of changing his mind on the basis of our prayers. Right? How do you reconcile the transcendence and the imminence? You don't. There's a mystery there, akin to the mystery of the incarnation itself. How do you recognize someone who is holy man and holy God? You can't. Right? Same with the Trinity and all other mysteries. You ultimately can't reconcile these things. That's why they're mysteries. Okay? And here is the mystery inherent in prayer as well. So we cry out to God um, with Jesus teaching us how to pray and what to pray for. We do indeed find ourselves changed, but more importantly, we find that our God and Father is willing to change and willing to reorder things in accordance with our prayer. And all of this viewed in in the category we would call imminent or imminence. Make sense? Okay. So that leads us up then to the new material, Words to Say, 198. Before we get there, let me just pause and see if you have any thoughts or reflections on uh, what we've covered so far. Well, I'm thinking, well, God and his commands and what he expects, perfection, mm-hmm. and commandments, mm-hmm. that exists, mm-hmm. but also Christ has fulfilled that for us. Mm-hmm. So those two things, the law and the gospel, stand supposedly in opposition, but they're reconciled in Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I see this in a prayer like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, and the, so, I mean, 
as Christians in Christ, as baptized children of God, it is simply baptismal to talk to him. I mean, you really can't be a Christian without prayer because the essence of being a Christian is to be a baptized child of God and to have God as your father. And if you're not speaking, if you're not on speaking terms with your father, in what sense are you a son? Only in the sense of a prodigal son who needs to come to his senses, repent, and return to the Father, right? So that's why shorthand, you can't really be a Christian without prayer. I think that's one of the most helpful things I've ever heard is making the difference between the transcendent nature and the imminent and the not changing and the willing to change. That's huge. Yeah, it's huge for exegesis. It's huge for uh, theology in the proper sense when you're considering God uh, as a subject, even though I think that's going to obviously anthropocentric, anthropomorphic. Um, <clears throat> and then very helpful for prayer as well. Yeah, yeah, those two aspects of God. All right, everybody all right? So, okay, 198, the words to say. And maybe we touched on this last week at the very end, but I think the second paragraph really gets to Wolf Mueller's point. One of the marks of American Christian piety is spontaneity in prayer. To be genuine and spiritual, prayer should be from the heart. In other words, for a prayer to be a real prayer, you have to make it up on the spot. There is, of course, nothing wrong with making up a prayer. But the exaltation of spontaneity disparages printed prayers and praying the prayers of Scripture. In fact, there is a subtle disparaging of the Lord's Prayer because it is, quote-unquote, rote and not, quote-unquote, heartfelt. All right? So we could say a few things about this. Um, One of the things that I think might be most helpful is to recognize that when we come together as a family under God our Father on Sunday mornings, the prayers are all pre-written out. Why? Because they're common to us all. And it's not the time for Rhodey's idiosyncrasies to shine. Uh, It's not the time for Rhodey to say what's on his heart. Our prayers are bigger than that. These are the family prayers. And so we pray the Lord's Prayer. We pray the Psalms. We pray the Collect. We um, pray the prayers of the church. We pray these time-tested, patterned prayers. Um, And if you've ever had the experience, I think you'll see the genius of this. I don't know if it's genius, just the rectitude, the rightness of this. If you've ever been in a church where the pastor prays spontaneously, I call it praying with one eye open because you don't know what the guy's going to say. <laughs> You're sitting there like, ah, so far so good, so far so good. What are you doing? I'm not praying for that, right? So this is the problem with spontaneous prayers. I don't care who you are, how polished you are. Spontaneous prayers in the presence of, of other people are challenging, very challenging, especially if they're not well rehearsed and well planned out, which most in most churches they are most certainly not. Uh, So that's the problem or the weakness with spontaneous prayer in the familial context of Sunday morning. These are the family prayers. We're all on the same page where you don't have to pray with one eye open. You can commit yourself to them knowing they're good. Okay, so that's why we do what we do. Now, would it be a sin for a pastor to pray spontaneously? No. I have on maybe two occasions forgotten the prayers of the church as I've gotten up there and very quickly prayed prayers of the church ex corde from the heart and somewhat from memory. All right. So is that a sin? No, it's not a sin. But you can see the wisdom and the normative aspect of having quote unquote rote prayers uh, in the familial context, right? Now that's as you then as you go into your own homes Uh, There's room for both. There's more room for spontaneous prayer because it's 
it's less pressure, it's less in the, is the corporate sense of the body of Christ, but there's still room for those patterned prayers. And then as you go into your personal devotional life, of course, you find the same thing. There's plenty of room for those patterned, quote-unquote, rote prayers that Christ himself gives to teach us to pray, that the, given to us in the Psalms. But then there's even greater freedom for the spontaneity of prayer, because you realize if you make a mistake, you just say, oh, Father, I didn't mean that. Uh, (laughs) And you correct yourself, which is awkward to do in a larger dining room table setting. That rarely ever happens. Uh, Or especially in a church setting, where I've seen all kinds of excorde prayers from pastors that it's like, they probably know that they accidentally just prayed heresy, but it's even more embarrassing to point it out and apologize to God in the prayer and then correct it. (laughs) All right, so that'll give you some background. Now, as I always like to do, because I think this can be a very helpful way to think, um, in terms of quote-unquote rote prayers versus quote-unquote excorde from the the heart prayers, all right, two different things uh, happen that I think are to be avoided. We could kind of paint two different ditches here. The excorde ditch, and I don't mean to poke too much fun here, um, is the I just prayers. So because people don't know what to say, they end up saying, I just, we just, I just. And when you start to hear this, it's like, are you sure that's not a rote prayer? (laughs) Because that's how all of you always pray. It's not so. And then you get these other things that are kind of... uh, well, not kind of, very much problematic. So you get this idiosyncratic language like Father God. Father God's actually a big problem. That expression's never used in the scriptures, and if followed concisely, leads one into heresy. Father God? Is there Son God? Is there Holy Spirit God? Uh, So these kinds of Excorde prayers in the church take on a life of their own and become neither excorde nor good. <laughs> and so that's something to, that's one ditch to be aware of. Okay. They also, um, I think it's bon, Bonhoeffer who's got this great quote. It's something to the effect, I'll try to paraphrase him here, something to the effect of we should pray from the richness of the scriptures rather than the poverty of our own hearts. <laughs> That puts it so well. And it puts it so well if you have any experience praying, you realize how impoverished your heart is when it comes to prayer. I pray my laundry list and then I'm spent. That's the poverty of the heart felt in prayer, whereas the richness of the scriptures gives us much more, including those old dusty rote things like the Lord's Prayer and the Psalms breathed out by the living God. You know, those rusty things. Uh, So... Okay, that might be one ditch, but what might be the critique of rote prayers? All right, in traditions less like uh, the one I've been describing, kind of American evangelicalism, on the other hand, in traditions that tend toward a meritorious use of prayer, you do, in fact, find a strange phenomenon. Maybe you've heard it go like this. Lord have mercy, 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 amen. What was the point of that? The point was precisely to get out as many as you could or to get out the seven or the 12 or the 212. Uh, Why? I mean, do do you think that there's an angel sitting beside God being like, bing, bing, bing. Okay, I I got 212 there. Those are all credits to your account. So this might then be an expression of uh, where rote prayer goes awry. And it has, this is the fancy uh, Latin term, this ex opera operato, this by the doing of the deed itself, so completely apart from faith, completely apart from any intentionality, completely apart from anything else, as long as my mouth is saying the words, I'm getting heavenly credit. And that makes prayer a transaction, just kind of a nasty transaction. So we've got these two things, like your heart's got to be so in it, but your heart's foolish and impoverished, Or, my heart doesn't have to be in it at all. I can just wring it out and get credit. All right, 
those might be too, even if they are a bit of, like, let's say, caricatures, uh, those would be two ditches, right? Two major errors, both with quote-unquote rote prayer and quote-unquote ex corde from the heart, spont- spontaneous prayer, right? All right, so in the, in the middle is where we want to land with a heavy emphasis on God giving us the very words that we use to pray and even basing our words on what he has said to us first. So you might even pray in, you know, an, an ex corde prayer on the basis of what God has done for you. Let's say you went to our divine service earlier this morning and you say, Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for the forgiveness of sins you so freely bestowed upon me in the sacrament of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I have so many sins, and I am so thankful that you daily and richly forgive them for his sake. I pray that by this same body and blood, you would strengthen me in my body to serve you willingly this day, and that by the sprinkling of my tongue by your most precious blood, you would cleanse my lips to say only those things which are true and in accordance with your word and helpful and for the service of my neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, something like that, ex corde prayer. I made it up on the spot. But what do you have? You have it predicated upon the word or actions of God. And then you come to realize that prayer this way, you're praying not out of the poverty of your heart, like, oh, gee, I've got to make something up, but out of the riches of what he's already done for you and simply reflecting on that and praying that his love will have its way with me or with us. Okay, So you see how that's praying out of the riches of his word and his deeds as opposed to out of the poverty of our hearts. Okay, And that also then gives you the vantage point, which is key, is that prayer is a two-way street just not in the way that most of American Christianity takes it. Properly, prayer is a two-way street because God has already initiated the conversation. He's already given his word. He's already given his deeds. You are responding to those in your prayer. That's the conversation. Now, where does American Christianity go wrong with the conversation? Okay, It's up to me to initiate, so I pray my prayers, and then I wait and listen for God to respond. And how does he respond? By giving me a liver shiver or a sign or whispering it in my ear or giving me a compelling feeling in my heart. Now, here's the, here's the problem. Can you show me any chapter or verse from Scripture that tells me that that's how prayer works? You're not going to find any. That's not how God speaks to his people ever or anywhere in the scriptures. God speaks directly, immediately, as he did of old to the prophets, or immediately through his word and those who are speaking and proclaiming his word through his sacraments, through his church, etc. Okay? But God's very clear how he speaks. And so um, we're, you know, it really is kind of this puerile thing we do as American Christians where it's like, it's as if God has just spoken to us and instead of answering with what he's said in his, in his word, um, we ignore that, go off, ask him something totally different, and then, and then wait to hear where he's not speaking, which is, would be in our hearts or in our minds. That's not where he's speaking. He's speaking in his word. Okay, so you can see how like, this is like infantile and a complete misunderstanding of how prayer works. So this is the strength of Wolf Mueller's insight here, that he gives us uh, his own word and often his own words to say. He initiates the conversation, we respond, and then even more than that, he places his own word into our lips and says, when you speak to me, speak to me in this way. So kind of two sides of the same coin there that I'm pointing out. All right, let's pause there and see if you have any reflections. Otherwise, maybe I'll just pick up out a couple more thoughts and 
um, we'll, we'll kind of move on. Okay, here's one up front. Mm -hmm. Here. I think you know who she is. Two questions. The first okay. one, I often hear a salutation, Lord God, Heavenly Father. Mm -hmm. Does that sort of cover both the transcendence and the immanence? Yeah, I suppose it does. I suppose it does. I don't know how intentional that is. Uh, that, that's a, especially like the Lord God is a formula you find in Scripture, and then Heavenly Father, a formula you find in Scripture, and so frequently they're jammed together. But that might be a nice way of remembering. I hear that a lot. <laughs> and then the second one on the communication. Yeah. I think of it a lot like our own human communication. Somebody says something to us, we don't listen. We're already responding with our own thoughts. <laughs> So you right. want to be a good listener in <laughs> prayer, okay? Yeah, that's a great point. We're so selfish with God and with our neighbor that even when our neighbor's talking, we're seldom listening. We're just thinking of what we're going to say next. And that's sometimes paralleled with uh, God. And yeah, thank you for pointing that out. It's a great point. I was, yeah, was going to add that uh, often in when there's a public prayer of uh Someone will go up to the person who prayed, oh, that was such a nice prayer, and uh, <clears throat> always made me feel uncomfortable. It almost seems like it's a performance that you're being measured against. Yeah, that's a big problem. Yeah. That's yeah. a big problem. Using, using prayer um, as a way of drawing attention to you and to your piety uh, is something that Jesus is very critical of and points out specifically in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Uh, especially praying using great swelling words and drawing attention to yourself. Um, it's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, I'm not trying to accuse anyone of, of like sin here per se, but it's one of the reasons why in the congregational prayers, I try generally to keep the language real world language. It's not always, it, there's a formality, so it's not as if I'm just conversing, um, but at the same time, it's not, you know, I kind of, Sometimes in the, in the prayers we're given to us by the synod that we can modify and use how we want, you know, they tend towards a little bit of ornamentation. Dear Heavenly Father, everlasting God Almighty, blah, 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 and then we finally get to the petition. And I, I just find that, like, in pretty hard contrast with what Jesus teaches in Matthew 6 about not drawing attention to your eloquence and with your many words and your lofty speech and just keeping it simple. I mean, in a sense, reverent, of course, you're talking with the Almighty, um, particularly in a divine service context. So reverent, and there's nothing wrong with beauty of language, but there should be some simplicity and some earthiness and directness to it as well. So, yeah, that's why nobody ever thanks me for my prayers. <laughs> Just teasing. That would not be the point. I think, Barry, you're, you're tapping on into something deeper, too, which is um, when, uh, when we have things like prayers or when we have things like sermons or when we have things like musical pieces or the children singing or a soloist, as Americans, our default is always to look at it as though we were... Um, uh, consumers or spectators and thus the, the desire to praise or sometimes even give applause. But all of that is really rather misguided um, because it is, either, it is either already praise offered to God and thus it needs no praise from man or it is God's word to us and the one delivering it needs no praise because it's not his anyway, right? It's God's. And so um, to take ourselves out of the spectator, consumer, connoisseur mindset and to put ourselves more as receiver, giver, and to see the other people as either givers or receivers um, in worship is a more wholesome and less uh, self-conscious, less American way of looking at it, right? Sometimes, I, sometimes, and of course nobody in this room, but when someone will say to me, nice sermon, they don't mean that it impacted them greatly. They mean that they were sitting there not to receive what I had to say, but to judge what I had to say, and they judge it a B plus and worthy of a compliment. 
which indicates to me an entire failure to grasp the very reason or rationale why you'd be in church. It's certainly not to grade the preacher. I mean, that even as a preacher, you don't grade other preachers. If you're in church, you're there to receive from the Father, from his word, through, spoken through the pastor. Uh, so you're not in a, you're a position of receiving. And then to say thank you would be, or you know, to say something complimentary would be because it impacted you um, or encouraged you or something like that. That's, that's all well and good. Um, but yeah, the idea of like, okay, you hit nine out of my ten check marks. Nice sermon. It's like, you know, rather, I'd, I'd rather for your sake not have that compliment because it indicates you're not here for the right reasons. <laughs> so, again, like I said, nobody here in this room, probably not in this church. As a follow-up, uh, I just wanted to, often in my years of being at a table, a family table, let's say Thanksgiving. Ah. There's a mixture of uh, family and friends and believers and unbelievers. And I would like to pray for five minutes, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and because there's so much, you know, on my heart. But mm-hmm. the cook is saying, the food is hot, make sure it's short. And yeah. for the unbeliever that's there, uh, I really don't, you know. So, how do we handle that? I would rather almost to myself just pray silently in a mixed company like that. Uh, so how are we to to handle a situation like that when we're asked to pray? Because they come and they mm. say, well, you seem to be a Christian that can pray, so would you pray for us? And, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I personally sympathize. I don't know if I'll be able to be objective here because I... I know of no greater spiritual struggle or cross to bear than steaming hot food in front of you in an overly long prayer. Uh, that is, you know, to keep a right spirit in that context is, I think you'd have to be uh, one of the greatest saints ever to walk the earth. Uh, so, yeah, I would, uh, it would be my, my advice generally to, yeah, if this food is hot, to keep it short. Um, but that's not to say you couldn't pray lengthier say a few minutes before it's set on the table, gather everybody together and have a lengthier prayer or something like that. Generally, I view it like this. like um, It's your house, it's your table, they're your guests. At this table, you pray. You sanctify the food. You don't worry about it if it offends. I mean, who cares? And then they're going to eat that food knowing the truth that God gave it to them. And that's the only reason they're gnashing it through their ungrateful little teeth. Um, that's how it is for all of us. That's the uh, petition in the Lord's Prayer that God gives daily bread to the good and to the evil. And we pray in this petition that God would lead us to realize this and give thanks for our daily bread. Uh, so, yeah, that's... I don't know if I answered your question, but probably as safely as I could. No, I think you did. Thank you. All right. <laughs> yeah, please. This is a comment on compliments from cultural points of view, yeah. which have intersected in our family. My brother-in-law was a missionary in Japan. My mother went over to visit, and she made a chicken dish. And there was company, Japanese people. Well, in Japan, you're not supposed to accept compliments. Ah. You're supposed to be humble. In fact, my sister says... The competition is how humble you can be. Yes, exactly. So, so the, exactly. the Japanese people said the food was delicious. Uh-huh. It was a chicken dish. It was uh-huh. delicious. And my mother made the great faux pas of saying, thank you. Uh-huh. <gasps> it was terrible. Oh. <laughs> so we decided the best solution is whenever a compliment was given in Japan, you would say, the chicken did a good job. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) In America, if somebody gives you a compliment, they mean, we understand it just on the surface, and you say, thank you. Yeah, sure. It's kind of even in America a mark of maturity to just receive a compliment and move on, right? Yeah. But I understand in Germany, you're not supposed to give a compliment because 
it's putting yourself over as a superior mm. to the person you're complimenting. Oh, like a teacher would say, a good job. I approve of it. I see. Okay. So yeah. we have this conflict. You know? Yeah, yeah. How do you accept that kind of thing? True. Yeah, very true. Very true. So I have a quick question. Um, sure. How does addressing God as God the Father differ um, from calling him Heavenly Father as to cause heresy or as to lead to that? Like, wh- Maybe it's a, I don't know, nitpicky kind of a question, but No, I'm it's a curious. good question. It's a good question. And probably in most people's minds, it isn't a heresy. They just don't know what they're saying. And so to specify, it's the construction Father God that's the problem. God the Father, fine. Um, because God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit. Um, to reverse that, you run into a Trinitarian problem. Again, I kind of tried to, I don't know how deep I'll be able to go into this without having eyes glass over, but um, if you say Father God, then you have to ask, is there Son God? Is there Holy Spirit God? And this way of speaking is alien to the tradition of the church. And why it's alien is because it does, of necessity, create three gods as opposed to one. Because you have Father, God, Son, God, Holy Spirit, God. You can think of it in terms of a picture. It might be better. But if you think of it as, um, so if you think of like, God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit. That makes sense, like no red flags. But if you, if you jam in the middle like, okay, Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God, you end up with three gods. You also end up with a problem like God is one in essence but three in persons, And so when you imply the personhood on the deity, then you run into that same problem of it necessitates that the other personhood would be laid upon the deity. And when you lay the personhood upon the deity, you've got it backwards. You've got the construction backwards. And when the construction's backwards, you lose that God is one in essence and three in person, and you you move the essence to the persons, and the and then you move the um, the personhood ironically to the deity. So that is probably the best I can do in really short order of the danger of Father God, Son God, Holy Spirit God. Now, do I think that probably most people who pray that way um, realize what they're doing? No, I don't think that they're intentional heretics. But I think it would be instructive if you asked them, "Do you ever pray, Jesus God?" Or Son God? Do you ever pray Holy Spirit God? And if not, why not? Right? Any, any uh, thoughts to follow up on? I, the microphone may have fled you. I'll try to repeat it. So with our Father who art in heaven, you're praying to God specifically to the person of the Father. So so a a way to think of it is just the directionality or the logic of it is fitting. So you can pray to any of the three persons of the Trinity. You can pray to the Father, pray to the Son, pray to the Holy Spirit. Um, But again, the oddity comes in in the language of Father God, Son God, Holy Spirit God. And if you're not willing to say Son God or Holy Spirit God, then what is it that you're saying? In what unique sense are you saying that the Father is God, right? And if you're saying that there is any unique sense in which the Father is God, that the Son is not God or the Spirit is not God in the same way, now you're in heresy, right? Now you're in violation of the Athanasian Creed. So that's really the issue is it's a novel way of speaking and a way that lends itself to heresy and a way that's inconsistent in its usage and not developed in its usage. Again, do you pray to Son God or do you pray to Holy Spirit God? If not, why not? Because that's a problem. Right. So that's really the rub of it. And again, I mean, what would really be the take home point? 
uh, the take-home point would be when you hear something that's trendy and novel, don't do it. <laughs> that would be the point. It's probably garbage. And, uh, yeah. Uh, I was just, I just had oh, a yes, comment way, way back from, um, about rote Sure. Of prayer or prayer for your sure. heart. Sure. Gord and I had been talking just this morning about modern examples of the Tower of Babel. I'm sorry, you might have cut out. Okay, about oh, modern examples of the Tower of Babel. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we were talking about it in reference to how divisive our nation is, how divisive mm. the world is, how divisive. And we're so, t that's our modern Tower of Babel now. We're not willing to understand each other. We're focused, and then we turn off and our ears are gone. Those rote prayers, they've been given us to us from God and vetted out through the years, our yeah. creeds or whatever, as a common knowledge. Even what she was talking about, the Germans think this way, the Japanese think that. There's that common, mm -hmm. that's, there's that Tower of Babel where we don't understand each other. Yeah, yeah. But these rote prayers are a place we can go where we can be assured yes. that our language is not going to create a Tower of Babel. Right. Like when you said, oh, when I ha now I, I didn't understand what you meant, and then it became praying with one eye open. Ah, yeah. You, it relieves you of that exactly. burden. Yeah, exactly. It's so well said. I mean, th I, I honestly think this way. Thank God for rote prayers. Luther said that he, he, he goes, he goes, I have never in my entire life, and I don't believe any other Christian has either, prayed the Lord's Prayer once with full sincerity and without sin. It's impossible. And so once you realize that, then you start to recognize, well, I said the words, what percentage of my heart was in it? <laughs> and then of that percentage of my heart that was in it, how much of that was right or accurate? Okay, so uh, this is why I say God bless rote prayers because God hears them anyway. And, you'd, and yeah, okay, so my mind wasn't entirely there. Does that mean God didn't hear my prayer or didn't care for my prayer? No, he did. He cares, he hears. I mean, it's the same way we talk to each other. Like when my wife's talking to me, I don't say, now, is your heart really in this <laughs> grocery list? Um, are you genuinely communicating with me or are you just throwing out things off the top here? It doesn't matter. Communication's communication. And thank God for rote prayers because we have that assurance there that God delights in hearing these things and we can pray them anyway. Yeah, it's just wonderful. So um, I see we're over time. I apologize for that. Let's end there. The Lord be with you.